Alright, hello there everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, I am your host, and I would like to thank you first and foremost for listening. If there's any way you can interact with the product, please do so. Like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, any and all of that that's it, that you can do, it all helps. If you've done that, well you don't want to. I mean, look, I'd appreciate it if you did all that, but if you've done all that... Or it only lets you do it once, because I know you can't, certain platforms, you can't rate individual episodes, it's the show as a whole, etc., etc. Share. You have have the internet at your disposal. Let your friends know about it if you think they'd be interested in the show. That that helps more than anything if you've done everything else. I kind of assume you've done everything else if you're already here, so if you would, please. That's appreciated. Alright, on the agenda this evening... Last night, UFC 276 was a pretty solid card on paper and turned in a pretty decent event, all things considered. Uh, We have to preview UFC on ESPN 39, which is next week's card, because the UFC is not slowing down for a little bit. And then news of the week, such as it is. Uh, So that's what's on the agenda. Uh, Yeah, I don't have anything else to get to here. Let's just jump right into it then, shall we? So, UFC 276. Main event. Israel Adesanya scores his fifth. Fifth. Successful title defense at 185 pounds. He remains undefeated at that weight class. He defeats Jared Cannonier for a unanimous decision. 249-46 is 150-45. I was 49-46. I think I gave Kennedy near the third. Uh, this was not a... This was not the most entertaining fight. I don't think it's as bad as people are making it out to be. Uh, there there were people who were leaving the fight fairly early, and look, if you paid for the ticket, you're allowed to do what you want as far as how much you attend. The only thing that really annoys me The only thing that really annoys me, I think, about... There's two things that annoy me about MMA fans when they're in the audience. One is the woos. I hate the woos. Two is... Booing individual fighters. Um, especially after the fight. Like, I'd say mostly after the fight. If you're invested beforehand, fine. During the fight, if you want to be a little bit partisan, fine. Or even severely partisan. I, I'm, I'm actually kind of okay with that. Yeah, I, I can understand it. When the fight's over, just don't be jerks. Don't boo someone because you disagree with a decision. Like, boo the judges, but when the fighter is talking, there's no... Unless they're doing something to provoke it, and sometimes they do. Then, like, if it's an engagement thing, if they're, like, kind of messing with you, then fine. Okay, like, at that point, it's kind of reciprocal. But to just kind of be... You know, just, just boo fighters after the fact. Uh, I, I'm just not kind of... I don't I don't like that a whole lot. I'm not the biggest fan of it during a fight, too, but that, I can... I'm a bit more sympathetic to that because you're paying to be entertained, right? And when the fight's not entertaining, it's not entertaining for long stretches, I can understand the manifestation of restlessness. I, it's not my... Again, I don't really like it, but I can understand that one. So there were people leaving early, and... I would never leave a fight early, but 
I under if you paid for that and you decide like you want to beat traffic or whatnot and you know what the fights how the fights going like again I can see the logic. Uh, but this was not that bad a fight. It's not great. This is not an all-time classic. It wasn't even close to the best fight on the card, but it wasn't the worst. Uh, frankly, it was not all that close to the worst fight on this card, to be candid. But it had to follow a really good fight, actually, and had had a couple of other good fights, well, one short fight, and one really good fight before that, so... It was kind of, you know, the, the capstone to the event, and it did not live up to the fights that came before it, and so it suffers by comparison. That's that's fair. But this was, again, this was not the worst fight ever. Not the worst fight on the card. Cannoneer uh, really struggled to find any kind of meaningful offense pretty much all fight. Uh, Adesanya chipped at him with leg kicks, had a pretty good jab working. But there's this weird kind of phenomenon with Izzy at the moment. I think there's a f people have kind of figured out how to manage elements of the risk when fighting Israel Adesanya. They haven't figured out how to beat him yet, especially at middleweight. But they have figured out how to not get, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, based on his la his nickname. They do not. They have figured out how to not be styled upon. If that makes any sense. There's enough evidence of what he does. There's enough tape on him to kind of get a read on what to really avoid. Now, again, that has not led to anyone having real success against him apart from Blahovich. And even Blahovich is... Even the Blahovich win I, was not... Uh, how do I say this? I don't think that the Blahovich win was as re was necessarily all that repeatable, and I also don't really I don't really think that Blahovich uh, dominated. Like he won and he won fairly, but no one's had real. I would not even say that uh, Blahovich had tremendous sustained success in the way that you kind of need to when you're when we're really talking about going after a truly dominant champion. Like, you can't just win bits and pieces here and there unless you're a really... unless you've got a lights-out ability to close out a fight. Like, if you've got, you know, Francis Ngannou-style power, okay, you don't have to be a master at every range. You just have to be good enough to land the couple of the relevant punches, and you can win. Uh, but... People have not figured out how to be effectively offensive against Adesanya at this point as a general rule. I mean, even Blahovich, I keep coming back to that fight, while he won rounds, uh, his efficacy was a little bit hit and miss. He got he got by winning rounds, and I don't mean this negatively. Let me be very clear about what this. Um, he got by winning rounds more based on Adesanya's... Uh, Adesanya having to react... To, uh, to what Blahovich did to his feints. Like, Blahovich was... He reacted to every feint Adesanya threw, and he just kind of never reacted the same way twice, and did a lot of coming back with pressure and offense, which threw off Adesanya's reads. A lot of that wasn't the most successful stuff ever. But it was more... But, again, to win rounds, he was more successful than Adesanya was. 
Uh, Whitaker had a little bit of the same. I mean, that second Whitaker and Adesanya fight was... Uh, on rewatch, that was a fairly close... That was closer than I remembered it when I watched it live. Uh, but that was a lot of um, Whitaker trying to... Getting his jab going. It was kind of like, how do you rate jabs versus leg kicks? And, Whit and arguments about Whitaker's cage control time. Uh, there's no one's really found sustained, repeatable success against Adesanya. They what they have figured out is how to not get blown out of the water, and that's kind of what Cannonier did here. He didn't land all that much. He landed a few leg kicks throughout the early, like the first half of the fight. He was willing to leg kick with Adesanya, which I think was a good idea. Uh, he landed some decent body shots, nothing, you know, f uh, truly fight-altering, but Adesanya, especially if you kind of get him when he's a little bit more planted, he does a lot of leaning, and if you can't reach the head, especially with the height and reach disadvantage that most of that division has when they're fighting him, the body's a very open and valuable target there, so a little bit of targeting there was a good idea, but he just never had continued activity, he never did a great job of cutting Adesanya off, and there's a weird thing about I don't know why this is in terms of the flow of the fight, because uh, there's any number of reasons you can do this. When Adesanya is backing up, he likes to, he's a good counter-striker, so he likes to invite you to make a read, try something, and then you know, blast you on the counter. People have stopped engaging with him consistently in ways that allow that to really kind of be the be-all, end-all of his game. When Adesanya was going forward on Cannoneer, uh that's a... That's not a side of Adesanya we see a whole lot these days, and again, there's a lot of reasons for it, uh, for any number of, again, any number of reasons depending on any number of variables. But when he's going forward, he is a very dangerous fighter, and people forget that, I think. He, anytime he was the one advancing, uh, Kennedy was not comfortable off of the back foot here, and Adesanya did some work on him when he was the one going forward. But, uh, yeah, just Adesanya, more accurate, more effective. Some decent, I should, some decent clinch work from Cannoneer, but he struggled to find real meaningful offense out of it. Uh, yeah, th this went more or less how I think most people kind of expected it to. The amusing thing that's come out of this is some revisionist history and some delusion. Let's start with delusion. Um... Marvin Vittori said, you know, this fight was so boring that people were leaving the, you know, were leaving after like the third round or what have you. Uh, you know, I'm coming back for the belt, you know, y yada yada, self, you know, self promotion. Like he didn't fight for the belt very recently. I know he did because I covered it, and he didn't just try to, he didn't just spend large portions of that fight holding Adesanya on the fence, desperately trying for takedowns that didn't go anywhere. Because that's exactly what happened. Your fight against Adesanya was not exactly high theater or an action fight, buddy. I vividly recall that. Anyone can look that up. Uh, the revisionist history, though... I've seen some people say this, and it just kind of makes me shake my head. The, the contingent that, in the wake of this, have gone... And this is online, so it's probably a smaller contingent numerically, but I saw the talking point here, so I'm going to address it. The percent, the group of people that went, you know, no one ever called Anderson Silva boring, and I just about fell out of my chair. I saw this, you know, the, some tweets to this effect and whatnot. You must be new. 
Like that that's my only explanation for this. You must be new here. And that's okay. MMA fandom is very cyclical. Fans fall in, fall out and come in all the time. But I remember the Silva backlash. I was here for it. Not that I contributed to it in the way that most people use the phrase I'm here for it these days. I was present in the fandom at the time. I was covering some fights. I was starting some coverage and writing during the latter part of Anderson's title reign. In fact, I do kind of remember the podcast. I was not hosting this podcast at the time, but I was a contributor. I remember the podcast after Weidman knocked out Anderson Silva. So to anyone going, no one ever called Anderson Silva boring. I, you, again, you must be new. I remember the, I remember some of the back, even fights that you, people may not remember this about. When he beat, um, the heck was his name? Oh, the French-Canadian guy. Oh, why can I not remember this guy's name? I want to say it was uh, Patrick something or other. Uh, yeah, Patrick Cote. That fight ended in the third when Cote suffered a knee injury. The first couple of rounds were not great, and people were not happy. I remember the Talos latest fight, the next one. That went the distance. That was the first time uh, Anderson went the distance in the UFC, believe it or not. Uh, that was not a terribly compelling fight, and some people were not happy. If you don't remember the... The backlash to the Damian Maya fight was severe. I mean, you had Dana White at the post-fight press conference going, "I will, you know, Anderson won't main event a pay-per-view again. If he ever fights like that again, I will strip him of the title and cut him. I don't care. Because Dana was, at that point, much more... You th if you think Dana's prone to, you know, hy hyperbole now, you really should look up some of the stuff that he was doing, you know, mid to late 2000s. He was... That was something else. That was absolutely something else. So I, I remember these things. Uh, there was a very serious backlash against Anderson Silva at, this, at some points. And... Uh, not to make this comparison necessarily, but... In a similar vein, you know, look at the backlash that Floyd Mayweather suffered. Not calling... To be clear, I am not calling Israel Adesanya the Floyd Mayweather of MMA. That's not accurate at all, for a variety of reasons. But you had the same, you had the same kind of fan backlash to why are you fighting so boring when he's winning, and winning is the most important component. Uh, Adesanya has adjusted his style a little bit, I think. If you, I think if you look back, he's adjusted a lot of what he does. He's a little bit more risk. Not risk-averse, that's really the wrong way to phrase this. He manages a fight much better now than he did earlier in his run. Uh, and I think it serviced him very, very well. He doesn't take a lot of damage. And he doesn't get hit very often. And he's not losing. And there's and the other component of this, you know, the other fighter. You know, Jared Cannonier in this fight, his corner was brutally honest with him uh Especially going into the last round. Now, I'm the. This is a point that commentary always talks about, it, inevitably during the course of a fight, when a corner is communicating with their fighter. You know, why aren't they being honest with them? Well, because their job is not necessarily to be honest. Their job is to protect the fighter and to facilitate help facilitate the best performance. Sometimes that's not being honest with the fighter. 
You are trying to get the best out of them and help them perform to their best. That doesn't always mean honesty. That means putting them in the proper headspace to perform physically. Now, sometimes that does mean honesty. Sometimes it means calming things down. Sometimes it means firing them up. Like, what you have to do there is very much dependent on the fighter and your and the coach's relationship with them. But uh, John Crouch was very honest with uh, Jared Cannonier going into the last round. He said, we're down 3-1. Which, and you know, on one, I mean, he didn't know the judges' scorecards, but on one judge, he was down 4-0. On the others, it was 3-1. He's telling his fighter, you can't win a decision. You cannot win a decision here. The only thing you can do is finish this guy. That's it. Uh, so Cannonier knew this. He knew what was up. You know, John, uh, John Crouch was accurate. And he... There comes a point in certain fights, I think, and this is not a knock on Cannoneer because this is an observable kind of pattern with a lot of fighters, but you, you can kind of start to see it at some point. Fighters will reach a point where they're content losing a decision so long as they do not feel embarrassed. Where I can char, you know, I can go for broke, but I've been losing, and this will probably open me up to getting finished. But as long as I don't feel like I've performed badly, if I don't feel stupid, I will take the decision loss over being added to someone's highlight reel. Now, I don't know exactly how that manifests. If you talk to a bunch of different fighters, they'll probably verbalize it differently, assuming that they're telling you the honest truth. But I think that's what's that happens. I think that happens a lot. And that happens to very, very good fighters. Like, Jared Cannonier is a very good fighter. Uh, we've seen it happen in championship-level fights, where the, you know, the champion is losing and doesn't really go for broke in the final round, uh, somewhat content to lose a decision so long as they don't get embarrassed. It happens. Uh, and it, it can happen all up and, down the car, up and down the ranks, and I do think that's a little bit what happened to Cannoneer here. Now, he knew he was losing. He's not a stupid guy. His corner's being honest with him. And he's an intelligent man. But you got in there, and <laughs> he fought very... I, I I don't even really know what, exa what exactly to call it, because it wasn't necessarily risk-averse. He was not running from the fight. But he did not fight, especially once it became mathematically impossible for him to win on the cards, he did not fight in such a way that maximized his opportunity to score the finish that he needed. Uh, so that was the fight. After the fight, Israel Adesanya said he knows that next for him will be Alex Perea. Uh, we'll talk about his fight in a minute or two here, but that's that seems fair at middleweight. You know, Adesanya's beaten a lot of the top talent in that division at this point, some of them more than once. So... That makes sense as far as the next fight goes. Uh, yeah, look, again, Adesanya's performances right now are not necessarily the kind of... He has not wowed people, partially because most people don't understand what he's doing or don't look at it with a nuanced enough eye, but he's not really wowing the fans at this point, and... Uh, you know, that, that's kind of his choice to, as far as how he plays that out in the cage... You know, so be it. And 
I've said this before. I said this as well, and I'm going to repeat it. There's a lot of fighters and a lot of camps who have seen enough of Adesanya to avoid the most dangerous parts of his offensive game. Now, it still has not led to victory, but they can stop being smoked. And unless until someone figures out a way to really weaponize some of that information, or until Adesanya changes up a little bit uh, some of his approach or what he feels in the fight, that's just kind of how it's going to be. So, main event, perfectly acceptable fight. Nothing that I'm going to remember. You know, nothing that I think anyone's really going to remember, but not the worst fight on the card. But let's talk about... Uh, genuinely one of the most brilliant performances I've seen out of a fighter. I, I'm not necessarily going to say the most brilliant, but this was a truly uh, superb outing. Featherweight champion Alexander Volkanovsky defeats Max Holloway via unanimous decision 50-45 across the boards. This was not a close fight. And I, I look, I said this about their first fight. That was not close. It was very competitive, but it was not close. Their second fight was extremely close. Uh, this was not at all. I remember what I think the closest round was. It was either three or four. I think it might have been three that was probably the closest round. And even that was not exactly that close. Um, this was brilliance from Volkanovsky. Absolute brilliance. Uh, his hand speed and his foot speed was absolutely on point. And to, he's a fast guy anyway, but he also had a read on Max's timing in ways that seriously exacerbated some of those athletic advantages. You know, proper timing beats the faster guy. That's been true forever. That's true of everything. If you have a read on the timing, you don't have to be quicker. You just have to be in the right place at the right time. When you're faster and you have a read on someone's timing, ooh, that's a recipe for disaster. And Volkanovsky beat the crap out of Max Holloway. Uh... His leg kicks were working. Max had some good leg kicks of his own. Uh, so that deserves to be mentioned. But Volkanovski was really good about about controlling the terms of engagement. If he only wanted to throw one or two and then stop the exchange there, he did. If he wanted a more, a longer combination, you know, he was ready with his defense. He was ready with his counters. He never let Max, even though he, even though Volkanovski did a lot of, uh, he did a lot of the backing up and circling, Max Holloway never dictated anything about this fight. Never. Uh, Volkanovski landed a really good right hand in the second that opened a horrible cut on Max Holloway. It was uh, a vertical cut, which are always a little bit worse. I, I feel like they're worse. Something about the, uh, I think it's the musculature on your face. It's a little bit more aligned side to side than up and down. Uh, some of that's to do with the bone structure beneath it, um, stuff like that. So when you cut along the, 
when you cut the same direction as kind of the muscle uh, fibers and striations and whatnot, that's a little bit easier to do when you cut across it. That's harder and is a lot more damaging. It's kind of the same reason that for those of you who, you know, cut meat, uh, if you're cutting meat to serve it, you cut it against the you cut against the grain so that it's easier to chew up and whatnot. But that's it's actually harder to cut against the grain than it is with it. And but when you get those big vertical cuts, like those always seem worse. This one was right on the eyebrow, kind of near the bridge of the nose. Uh, this fight could have been stopped due to that cut. It, it wasn't, but it absolutely could have been, especially by the time we got around to, like, the fourth round. Could have been stopped pretty... And, look, people would have pitched a fit because MMA fans. But that could have... No one who knows what they're looking at would object to that fight being stopped. Just putting it like that. That was a bad cut. Uh, he busted up Holloway's other eye, was swelling up just because of the jabs and the hooks. Uh... Anytime they got in the clinch, Volkanovski was the stronger fighter. He, Volkanovski landed some really good elbows in the clinch this time. Um, just never let Max get going. Diffused him with leg kicks, body kicks, split his timing constantly. Uh, great angles, great footwork, great darting in and out. Just this would have been an exception. This would have been a great performance against anyone. Against someone the caliber of Max Holloway, it is exceptional. Because Max Holloway is still very, very good. Uh, just a, again, like just one of the best performances, one of the best fights. If we're just talking about like one guy, how did one guy fight? This is one of the best. It was exceptional. Uh, Max Holloway joked on Twitter, you know, I think you need a fourth fight. Uh, <laughs> He was clearly joking, like stated out afterwards. Nah, it's all good, man. And he, so these two had, in the lead up to this fight, these two had some respectful heat. Uh, you know, Max was fired up. He was Max was really fired up for this one. All fight week. If you look at his interviews, uh, no matter who he was with, you could see it. Then you know he gets to the ceremonial weigh-ins, and he's you know, coming out already shirtless and just trying to feed off the crowd's energy. Like, Max was here. He was very, very, you know, amped for this fight. And they never got into real kind of trash talk, you know, and certainly nothing very insulting. But there was there was heat. And, you know, these two guys have always been very respectful of each other. But you can be respectful and you can still be competitive. And I think both of them were. Uh, I said this a little bit ago. I think I said it after the Chan Sung Jung fight that I think Volkanovski's the best fighter in MMA. Like, if, we're if we go skill for skill, there's nothing he can't do. He's good offensively. He's good defensively. He's got power. He's <laughs> one of the more... We don't think of him as one of the most sophisticated strikers in the sport, but he absolutely is. He can grapple. He's got an, he's got an insane motor. Like, the pace these two kept for five rounds... Uh, was pretty darn high. Again, skill for skill, Volkanovski's the best fighter in the world. I don't know if that means you should put him at the top of your pound-for-pound pound discussion. Some people prefer ranking longer title reigns and whatnot. Like, there's a bit of a debate between him and Usman, I think, at the moment. Uh, I don't do a pound-for-pound pound ranking, 
but you can just, who do I think is the best? That guy. That guy's the best. After the fight, he said, you know, I'd like to go up and fight for the lightweight title. Maybe keep both divisions busy. The lightweight title right now is kind of a mess. And I think if... We're going to have to wait a little bit and kind of see how that sorts out before we can kind of... Before we can begin figuring out how Volkanovski would theoretically fit into the picture. Because there is no lightweight champion right now. Logically... The title, the vacant title will be contested between Charles Oliveira and Islam Makhachev. Whether that actually happens or not is another thing. Those are the top two guys in the division, my opinion. They should be the ones fighting for the belt. But there's logistic issues. There's, there's just, you know, stuff. I don't... You could make Volkanovski... For, versus whoever for the vacant belt. You absolutely could. Uh, I don't... It, it's just... You've got Connor who might still parachute back into lightweight, and if you think the UFC won't allow him to do so, you are... somewhat divorced from reality. <laughs> like, of course they would. Of course they would. He only recently got... Prior to the last set of rankings, I, I yelled about this a little bit, I think, on the last podcast. Because I recorded that before the most recent rankings came out. Conor McGregor was still a top 10 lightweight in the UFC. Uh, he's finally not anymore. Gamrot, I think, bumped him out of the top 10. But, I mean, he shouldn't be ranked at all. At all, at all. Uh, but he still is, and again, the UFC... If you think they wouldn't do that... You've not been paying attention. So there's a little bit, there's a lack of clarity at lightweight that might also be opportunistic for Volkanovski. I got thinking about this. Um, he's not a big featherweight. He's going to be the smaller lightweight if he fights there. There's some big lightweights. I mean, on this same card, we have like Jalen Turner, who's 6'3", I think. Like, huge lightweight. So he would, he would be smaller. But would I favor him to beat, say, Al uh, Charles Oliveira? I might. As I think about that at the moment, I might, in fact, lean towards uh, Volkanovski in that fight. That's not a knock on Oliveira. Like, Oliveira is maybe the best light... I think he probably is the best lightweight in the world. Now, again, that doesn't mean he can't lose, but I do think he's the best. And I might favor Volkanovski to beat him. Uh, that's, I mean, more importantly, like, tell me you wouldn't love that fight. You can't tell me that fight wouldn't be awesome. However it goes, you can't tell me that wouldn't be a great fight. So that's, uh, as far as Max Holloway goes. I've seen some people kind of mention uh, that, you know, he might be... Washed might be a little bit strong of a phrase, but he's not who he used to be, which I think is true. Uh, I would like to see Max take some time off. He is paid pretty well for his... I think he streams, right? He used to stream on Twitch. I think he got an exclusive deal from... He's still streaming? Uh... 
Let me see if I can find that, actually. Is he still on Twitch? Um, hmm. I know he, I know he has streamed on, uh, he might have got an exclusive deal with, like, Facebook gaming or whatnot. Which, you know, fine and dandy, like, if he's getting paid and paid well for that, and indicators are that he, indicators are that he is. Uh, you know, absolutely good for him, you know, get paid, man. But, I would like to see him kind of take a little bit of a step back. Look. Max Holloway is not an old guy. He's younger than I am. He's only 30. Uh, he'll be 30... be 31 in December. Okay. So he's not old, but... He started... He started training and kickboxing and whatnot very early. Uh, when he was like 15. And a lot of people do start uh, fairly young when they, when you start something. Like, that doesn't mean you're taking all the abuse all the time when you're you know an early teenager or whatnot, but a lot of people start early. And if you continue with it, then it does kind of start... It starts to pile up. Max, people forget this about Max, man. He debuted in the UFC in 2012. So he's been here for 10 years. And it was his fifth professional fight. So, he's now had 30 fights. That means, what, 26 of them were in the UFC? Yeah, 26 fights in the UFC. First of all, a lot of fights. Over 10 years, it's a long time to be in the UFC, and he has had some serious wars. Let's n you you can't look at some of the fights he's been in and not go yeah that was that that bill comes due man it always does now I'm not saying the guy's washed but mileage is more important than years in some respects and you have 26 fights in the UFC and you have fights like his I mean look some of his fights were blowouts right. But you have some of those fights, man. Like, both of his fights with Jose Aldo were not easy fights. Like, he got hit. He got hit pretty good in some of those. Uh, the Brian Ortega fight, that was relatively one-sided in his in his favor in a lot of respects. But it's not like Ortega had zero success over the course of it. His second fight with Dustin Poirier was a war. He had the two Volkanovski fights. Like, that, that fight with Yair Rodriguez that he had in November of last year, that was a blood and guts war. Like, this guy's been here, he has fought everybody, he's achieved at a high level, he is one of the best featherweights of all time. Uh, his, you know, he's got a bunch of records, as far as... Granted, a lot of those sim singly, uh, come from the singular fight with Calvin Cater. But, I mean, he's tied for the most... Uh, post-fight bonuses in the division's history. Most He has the most finishes in the division's history. He has the most KO and TKO wins in the division's history. He has the most wins straight up in the division's history. The longest winning streak in divisional history. Like, this... This is a guy who has achieved at a very, very high level. After a beating like this, and this was a beating, 
dude, take time. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. Let your body recover. Get right with yourself. He might move to 155. Uh, I would be curious to see him compete up there. And I don't just mean like as a one-off. Really get yourself to being a, a lightweight fighter. You know, uh, Dustin Poirier has talked about this. Like He used to fight at featherweight. Then when he committed to moving to lightweight, he, he actually got so big that lightweight became a pretty significant cut for him. And he's you know, fought a couple of times at welterweight, not against other welterweights, but still. If Holloway does makes those same kind of commitments to changing his body, I'd be curious to see him fight at lightweight. I don't know how much... Could he beat good lightweights? Yes, I, I think he could. He's that good a fighter. But I also think that... You know, that... Ten years is a long time to be in the UFC. Got a lot of fights, and he's put a lot of miles on, on his body. And... That's not free. No such thing as a free lunch. You know? You pay for that. So, I, I don't have anything bad to... You know, I, I don't know exactly what he's going to do. I wish him well. I have nothing but good things to say about Max Holloway as a general rule. So, Great performance out of Volkanovski. Serious, uh, just... Exceptional performance out of that guy. Who, again, I think best fighter in the world. Straight up. Uh, we had a middleweight fight next. Alex Pereja defeats Pereja Pereira. There's some weirdness about ours. Uh, I double-checked this about Portuguese the other day because it was bugging me. Anything that starts with an R, you get the H sound. If it's not starting the word, uh, the double R, I believe, makes an H. But if, other than that, it, the R should make an R sound. So I might be an accent thing in there as well. I genuinely don't know. I mean, because, like, Horian Gracie is Horian, not... That's R-O-I-R-O-N. So the second R is an R, not an H. Or, or, or Henner. Not Henne. It's Henner. So, I don't know. I'm going to... Trust me that I'm operating in good faith. <laughs> That's all I can really ask about this. Anyway, Alex Pereja defeats Sean Strickland via knockout punches, 236 of the first round. I did not expect Sean Strickland to fight like an idiot. When I say like an idiot, I don't mean like a jackass, and if you've ever trained, you know what fighting like a jackass is. He fought like an idiot. He kept his hands a bit low, and he just kind of marched forward at Pereja, and let Pereja, uh, Pereja just circle, snipe at him, pick at him, leg kick him, body kick him, punch him, find angles, because Strickland's always coming in on a straight line. It was... This was absolutely how not to fight Alex Pereja. <laughs> just, you ever want to know how not to fight this guy? Watch this fight. Strickland... I, Str Sean Strickland is a very good fighter. I'm not trying to bury the guy here. He's a very good fighter. He had a long winning streak and earned every bit of it. But I don't know what he was doing in this fight. I don't. I genuinely have no idea what he was doing. This this boggles the mind. Because this is pretty much the worst way to fight this guy. Uh, yeah, Pereira is probably next for Adesanya because they have that kickboxing history. Fi fine enough fight. I don't really object to it. Uh... 
really nice knockout. Really nice knockout from Pereira. So there was that at least. Uh, next up at welterweight, Brian Barbarina defeats Robbie Lawler via TKO punches and elbows. 4:47 of the second. This was a darn. This was your fight of the night, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was kind of a study in volume versus power. Barbarina kept a very high output, whether he was backing Lawler up or being backed up. He just kept punching, kept punching, throwing elbows, throwing kicks. Lawler was a little bit more economical with his volume, but hit a lot harder. And he hit Barbarina hard more than once. Like, these two busted each other up. But Barbarina's volume, just you keep going, you keep going. You're going to start wearing the guy down. You're going to start finding success. He started hurting him, clipped him, backed him into the fence, never let him off the hook. Uh, fight of the night, deservedly so. Very fun brawl. Biggest win of Barbarina's career by a long shot. I I don't know. I don't think his ceiling is all that high, and I don't mean that. like We're talking welterweight, so the top of that division is a very, very high ceiling. I don't quite think he's there, but you beat a legend, and Robbie Lawler's a legend. It's a big win. It's a real big win, so kudos to him for that. Um, I was half worried Lawler was going to hang him up after this. Uh, we had another retirement earlier that I'll get to when we get to it. And he's got a lot of years. Dude, Lawler has both years and miles. Just out the wazoo. Right. Lawler debuted in 2001. Like, he and I think Olofsky are the only two guys fighting in the UFC at the moment that have professional fights recorded from before September 11th. Think about that for just a second. Robbie Lawler's been doing this since your family could walk you to, could walk with you and wait with you at the gate for your flight. For those of you who are very young, you may not remember, you may not be aware of this. There was a time, you still had like, Airport security was different, man. You still had metal detectors and whatnot. Like, it was still kind of a process. But I flew a fair bit as a kid, um, at least twice every year, because I would go down to my grandparents for a couple of weeks during the summer. And that was always a flight. Uh, so I've flown a fair bit. And for a while, it was... We would all... You know, we'd get there when we got there. We'd all wait in the area around the gate together. You know, those, you know benches and the seats out and... Me, my, whether my, if my parents were putting me on, uh, if I was coming back, then it's, you know, my parents, my grandparents would there be there to see us off. It was a thing. You could literally be there by the gate. These two guys have been, you know, guys like that have been fighting since that was the norm. So you got a guy with you know, 21 years, over 21 years, April of 01. Bobby Law has been fighting a long time, and he's got a lot of fights. He's got 46 fights, and he's got a lot of wars during that particular time frame. I mean, look, it's easy to say it. Those fights, that fight, the fight with Roy McDonald, followed by the fight with Carlos Condit, uh, he was never the same. I mean, none of those guys were the same after those fights. Roy McDonald was never the same. Condit was never the same. Lawler, never the same. And yeah, you go again. You go back that far. You know, you go back five years or so. Lawler, uh, I would have picked him to beat Barbarina easily, but that's not where he is now. So 
I, I'm, we are, just need to accept, the, the end of the road for Robbie Lawler is probably very close. So, appreciate him while we still got him. This was a fun fight. And kicking off the main card, Pedro Munoz and Sean O'Malley fought to a no contest. There was an accidental eye poke in the second round that rendered Munoz unable to see out of his right eye. Um, this was maybe the worst outcome possible for all parties in some respects. This was meant to be a step up for Sean O'Malley to test himself against a proven top-shelf bantamweight. And Pedro Munoz is a freaking hammer. Like, I mentioned it before. His winnings, his, he's like 1-5 in and 1-4 in, in his last five. But those losses are to the best. I don't mean that, like, metaphorically. Those losses, I'll, I'll read them out. Aljamain Sterling, the champion. Frankie Edgar, he should have won that fight, actually. Jose Aldo might fight for the belt again. And Dominic Cruz, still one of the top bantamweights in the world. So he's, he's losing to guys near the top. And... This was meant to be a kind of big step up for O'Malley, who'd been kind of rebuilding after the loss to, uh, to Marlon Vera, which is, I don't object to, actually. You know, if you're a young guy with a lot of promise and you have that setback, you don't necessarily have to jump back into the deep end of the pool right away, assuming you have the leverage or the goodwill with the UFC to get it done. Rebuild yourself. That's not the end of the world. Uh, Forrest Griffin, after he got knocked out by uh, Keith Jardine, like he had a... Was he fought? Because people were because a couple of fights later he was in a much bigger fight. But his first fight after that you know knockout loss was uh, again kind of a get well might be a bit uh, disingenuous. But Hector Ramirez because the fight after that he fought Shogun, which was his big kind of win uh, that got him to the title picture. Yeah, he he suffers. Uh, his first knockout loss in the UFC, only his second knockout loss ever. And they give him kind of a softer get well fight. You know, Hector Ramirez was not a bad fighter, but and he had one fight in the UFC before that, and he got stopped by James Irvin. And he was there. He was there to see how to kind of let Griffin rebuild. So let fighters rebuilding after those setbacks is not the end of the world. But this was meant to be O'Malley, to tell O'Malley, okay, let you rebuild, let's see where you're at now. And O'Malley, a little, like most fighters, a little bit delusional, says he thought he was dominating the fight. He was not dominating this fight. Um, I didn't think he won. Two of the judges gave Munoz the first, I gave Munoz the first. I, I'm not saying there's, I'm not saying O'Malley fought badly, but... Dominating, no. I mean, in the back, his post-fight stuff was like, yeah, he was looking for a way out. Sorry, miss me with that. You can absolutely miss me with these. So-and-so fighter near the... any Anyone who has achieved at that level in MMA, they are not looking for a way out. If that guy says, I can't see after getting poked in the eye, and he got punched in the eye as well before getting poked, and punching the eye is legal, poking it is not. But if you poke someone in the eye after you, you know, like, you can punch them legally there, and then if they can't see, you win. If you're hitting the eyes and then you gout, then you poke them, and that is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back, 
then you one up then the foul is what caused the end of the fight not the good legal work you've done before that that's just how this goes so I, if he says he couldn't see like what am i going to what am i going to say like this guy who's you know been in the trenches and been to war with the best fighters in his division was suddenly deciding no i i want out please please give me an easier path that's yeah that's a little bit ridiculous but, you know, fighters say and believe what they need to say and believe to do what they do. Um, Munoz's leg kicks were doing okay, but in, I think this is true of Sean O'Malley at the moment. And this is, maybe clear about what I'm about to say, this is a fixable problem. But I don't think he has plans B, C, and D. Like, he's got his A, he's got his plan A. And... It's kind of baiting you in long, accurate punches and kicks till he finds a kill shot. If you don't engage with him on his terms, he doesn't have a whole. I don't. I haven't seen the fallback plan. Like, okay, plan A didn't work. What's next? He seems to just kind of do plan A again and again and again and again. And he might have been able to get Munoz out of there the second round. Things were tilting a little bit in O'Malley's favor when the fight ended. So deser- that does deserve to be said. Uh, but I I don't think he's got, you know, that whole system of, okay, I can, if I can't fight at distance, I can fight in the pocket. If I can't, if I can't bait you into coming forward, I can be the aggressor. Uh, if I'm the aggressor, I can, you know, cut angles. I can... F- if I don't like how I'm fighting out of orthodox, I can fight out of southpaw. He switches his stance a lot. But that was a funny thing that Munoz did. Anytime O'Malley switched stances, Munoz just switched with him, so they were always closed, and then just punted his lead leg. But I, I, I just don't think O'Malley has a lot of those secondary options at the moment. Now, this is workable. This is a thing that can be addressed, and addressed without too much difficulty. Like it, it takes work and it takes dedication, but so does fighting in general. So this is a this is a fixable issue for him. But I do think like if you can neutralize his plan A, I don't think he has plan B at the moment. And this happens to a lot of fighters, by the way, especially fighters who have a lot of success early. Like oh my A plan is working, I'm gonna go in there and knock everyone out in the first round, and I've got good power and I've got good footwork and I can get inside. Okay, well, what happens when you can't? You know, but I can knock everybody out. Okay, but what happens when you can't? You know, what happens when the guy's still there, when he eats your punches and kind of is able to uh, you know, sustain them and fire back? What happens when he's got good footwork as well and keeps you on the outside? What happens when he's able to land the jab and messes up your rhythm and your distance? And what happens when you can't get the takedown when you need it? What happens when... You, you know, I've, I've got great jujitsu. Okay, you got this guy's back. You had it for five minutes. You didn't do anything with it. What now? Like, it happens to a lot of, uh, probably every fighter, believe it or not. Now, whether this happens only in the, whether this epiphany happens in the training room or as a result of what happens in a professional fight will probably vary. But I imagine everyone at some point has that notion that, okay, Here's my plan A, and plan A is going to work. And then you have it beaten out of you that, okay, plan A doesn't always work. And I I just don't think that O'Malley's had that particular epiphany yet. 
Uh, maybe if he can learn from this appropriately, like if he can go back and look at what wasn't working for him here and kind of figure out, okay, I need secondary objectives. I need other game plans. I need other avenues to open up the fight for me, for myself. Then, you know, that's what he needs to do from this. If he comes away from this going, I, I was winning, I did what I did, and I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing. He's had success. Not knocking that. But nobody gets all the way to the top with plan A. I mean that, nobody. Even if you look at Khabib. Khabib did not get from his UFC debut to his retirement with plan A, believe it or not. And if you, you might be going, what do you mean? You know, he never, he was always kind of a wrestler. True. But what, what I mean is, if you're the dominant wrestler, fine. How do you make it work? Khabib had a lot of ways to make that work. And when he, when he came up against someone who stifled a lot of his game, people forget this fight. Unless, unless, look, unless you're trolling Khabib fans with it, most people don't remember this fight. When he fought Glayson Tebow in his second UFC fight, Tebow neutralized a lot of what Khabib likes to do. Uh, to Khabib's credit, despite winning the fight, he looked at what worked and what didn't and refined what he was doing. Because... He needed other ways to make it work for him, and he found them. And so that's what I mean. You want to be the dominant striker? Cool. Absolutely cool. Francis Ngannou did not get to the UFC heavyweight title with plan A. That might sound crazy, but he got to his first title shot with plan A. And then failed. Pretty miserably. He worked back to the title and to a win by having other plans that still rely that still utilized his striking but he was not just plan a look at what he does look at what he learns especially after the Derek Lewis fight he is not the same fighter he does not fight the same way he's still a striker but look at his setups look at his footwork Look at what he does to open up striking for striking opportunities for himself. That's the difference. And I don't quite think O'Malley has those nailed down yet. He might. He might not. That remains to be seen. I don't know if they'll book an immediate rematch between these two. They could. Uh, they very easily could. But if we don't get an immediate rematch, O'Malley needs to fight someone who's roughly occupying the same position that Munoz was here. So another ranked guy... Another guy who's durable, another guy who's really going to test whether or not Sean O'Malley can compete at the top of the division. That was your main card. Couple of, you know, a good finish, a, go um, a good little back-and-forth brawl, a great performance out of Lukanovsky, and the main event that didn't quite live up to what came before it, but was in no, by no means was that a bad fight. As for the prelims, oh boy. Jalen Turner defeats Brad Riddell via guillotine choke in 45 seconds. Turner's got an absurd frame for lightweight. He is, I said, like he's six three. Long body. He, that, like that guy has long limbs. He is lanky. Cracked Riddell with a right hand. Like Riddell's landing a kick. And commentary brought this up. I think it was Cormier who brought it up, and it's true. Most of the time, if I'm in range where I can kick you, you are out of range to punch me. This is true. 
most of the time, like vast majority of the time. You need to be aware of when it's not, when you're not in one of those circumstances. And when you fight Jalen Turner, that is not true necessarily. Riddell landed a kick. And Turner cracked him with a right hand, got closer, hit him with an uppercut. Uh, Riddell kind of panic wrestled. Turner grabbed a guillotine, pushed him over, got the mount with it. Uh, Jalen Turner is a, he's found his footing, man. Like, he, had a, he was a little bit up and down early in his UFC career. I mean, he, he debuted at welterweight and got blown out of the water by, by Vicente Luque. Moved back to welterweight. Again, a little bit up and down. I uh, had a loss in there to Matt Frivola, but since then, he's now won five in a row. Uh, and he should be... Riddell was number 14, I think, coming into this. Like, like very lower end of 15. He's probably going to take one of those spots, and if not, he should fight another ranked opponent. Like, this guy's a problem for lightweight. He has a real problem for lightweight. Uh... This was a great performance out of Turner. Next up, we had a welterweight fight. This fight began life as Jim Miller versus Bobby Green, but Green pulled out with an injury, I believe. Uh, some reason. I, I, don't, I don't think we have specifics on it yet. Green withdrew. Uh, Donald Cerrone steps in on short notice, and they just, to make allowances for that, they agree to fight at welterweight. These two coming in to this fight were tied with Andre Arlovsky. There's a three-way tie for most wins in UFC history. Well, we now have one man atop the most wins in UFC history, and it's Jim Effin Miller. They had a pretty good first round, not a barn burner, uh, but a pretty good first round. I think I gave it to Miller. Second round, uh, Cerrone lands a bit of a head kick. And Miller counters with a kick that goes kind of to the hip. Like, they throw it at the same time. The kick to the hip and leg from Miller drops Cerrone. Just kind of off-balances him. As Cerrone sits, you know, gets, goes to get up, Miller grabs a guillotine. It's an arm-in guillotine, and then the arm that's not overhooked, he traps with his guard. So you can't... Cerrone didn't have his other arm to try and fight the choke. It's a terrible... Like, that's it. Especially if you have someone who knows what they're doing with a guillotine, and Jim Miller knows what he's doing with a guillotine. Uh, if you don't have your arms, if you don't have an arm to help you fight that, like, so you're done. <laughs> and Cerrone was done. He fought it for as long as he could. He taps. Uh, I'll talk about Cerrone in a second. So, Jim Miller draws even with Cerrone. These two fought, like, eight years ago, and Cerrone won via head kick in the second. A pretty good fight, actually, the first time they fought. This was not a bad fight, straight up. Uh, so it was a uh, good win for Miller, who just kind of keeps on chugging along. This was Miller's 40th UFC fight, I believe. Uh, let me double-check that. He said it was number 40, so, yeah. He has most wins in UFC history at 24, most bouts at 40. He has the most lightweight... F I mean, this was at Welterweight, so that doesn't really matter. Um... So another finish. So I don't know where he stands all time in terms of finishes. He might be second. I think he and Cerrone are tied at 16. Or you know, for most finishes. I think Arlovsky's at the... Is Arlovsky at the top of that list? Ah, oh, it's not Arlovsky. Who is? 
Uh, let me have a quick look at that one. Uh, let's see. Has the most finishes all time. Oh, yeah, Oliveira. Duh. Ends up finishing the machine. Yeah, Oliveira has 19. Uh, so, Miller now at 16? Yeah, I think he and Cerrone are tied there, so that's... I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, yeah, so after the fight... I mean, look, look, my affection for Jim Miller is well established at this point. I, I love that guy. So, nice to see him get a win. He just keeps chugging along, and you know, you know what? God bless him, man. You go until the wheels fall off. Uh, apparently, this was the last fight on his deal, I think. So, he... Uh, they reported this, like, or coming in, this was going to be the last fight. He signed another extension or whatnot for another four fights. So, you keep doing what you're doing, Jim Miller, and, you know, again, you know, Godspeed and party on, man. After the fight, Donald Cerrone retired. He took off his cowboy hat and his gloves. He left them in the ring. In fact, uh, you know, classy move by Jim Miller. You know, Joe Rogan comes in to interview him. First thing Miller says is, "Go talk with Cerrone first. He's got stuff." To, I don't know. I don't know when. I, I imagine like in the immediate aftermath of the fight, Cerrone told him, because Miller just immediately said, "You know, go talk with Cowboy. He's got something to do first. It's a very you know, Jim Miller's a very classy fighter. Uh, so Rogan asked Cerrone, you know, uh, you know what's going on. He just said, "You know, I don't love it anymore." If that's the case then he should. I've said this about other guys, like other fighters have said this before. If you're, I like the way Rogan put it on occasion, like if you're not all the way into this, you should not, you better be all the way out because you will only get hurt. And if, Cer if Cerrone's time has passed and it has, like we can look at the evidence and say his time has passed. But if he's starting to, if he is now feeling that, you know, he had a he had a really good career, man. He had a really good career, and given how the UFC does their Hall of Fame, I would consider him a lock for it. Now, it's because the UFC Hall of Fame doesn't really have any standard. I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say this this way, and I understand that I don't. This is not as insulting as it is sounding, but the UFC has no established standards for being in the Hall of Fame. They don't. They have a few, uh, probably some loose guidelines, I suppose, but they don't they don't have baselines that you have to hit, right? You don't have to have been a champion. You don't have to have defended the title. You don't have to... You look at other... Any other uh, sports hall of fame, and most of those other sports don't run their halls of fame. You know, the hall of fame is kind of a separate entity, and it has you know, benchmarks you have to hit. Be in, be around so long, achieve so many statistics, you know, blah, what, blah, 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 blah. The UFC doesn't have that. And given what the UFC, given how the UFC operates, they like Cerrone, fans like Cerrone, so why not? It's probably a bit of a logic there. 
Um, let me look. Cerrone, when did he debut? Yeah, Cerrone debuted in 2006. So he's been doing this for a while. If you count up... Forget who tweeted this, but I but I think it's true. If you do the thing where where we kind of aggregate the four major organizations, so UFC, WEC, Strike Force, and Pride, Donald Cerrone has the most fight appearances of any one fighter when you aggregate all of those. So if you count up all of his WEC fights and his UFC fights, he has more appearances. Than anyone else. Uh, again, I mentioned Jim Miller has 40 UFC fights. Cerrone did not have that, but Cerrone, in addition to all of his UFC bouts, had six, seven, eight, nine. Cerrone had 10 WEC fights. So, you know, how many fights does he have total? He has 55 total fights. All but seven of those were in the WEC or UFC. So 42. Not 42, sorry. Um, my math. 55 minus 7. So 48. 40, he almost had 50 fights in the WEC slash UFC. It's a lot of fights. Um, I have a lot of affection for Cerrone. I have so many great memories of watching his fights. WEC fights, UFC fights. Dude always came to fight uh, and turned in some all-time greats. Turned in some great, great fights over the years. Loved by the fans. If he's ready to move on, I wish him absolutely nothing but the best. You know, he kind of joked that he's going to go be a movie star. He's done some acting recently. Um, he's in that, uh, he's in that, like, Western that's done by the, uh, the Daily Wire people that was starring Gina Carano. I think that came out recently. So he's in that. Uh, apparently he's in this Amazon series with Chris Pratt. I don't know how, you know, I don't know how extensive his role is, but, uh, The Terminal List, which I, I've not seen, but I believe he's in it. Has done any other, I think he's done other acting, yeah? Yeah, actually, he's done a, I wouldn't say a lot of acting, but he's done a bit. Uh, he was in this, uh, no, some of this is obviously not, you know, speaking, leading role material. But he's he's done, you know, some extra work and some kind of featured, or featured extra work. Uh, he's done, he's done, again, he's on the thing with television right now. He's done some... He appeared as himself in that episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, that show. I, I'm so back and forth on that show. But, you know, if uh, he, he's made some, you know, kind of jokes. Like, I'm going to start looking like Fat Thor now that I get to retire. Um, again, man, I, I wish I wish Donald Cerrone nothing but the best. Uh, enjoy the next phase of your career. Enjoy the next phase of your life, sir. And thank you as a, as nothing but a fan. Thank you so much for everything that you have given to this sport and to, somewhat vicariously, my entertainment. Uh, I thank you, and that's all I can say on the matter. Thank you. Welterweight. Ian Gary defeated Gabe Green via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. It's not a whole lot to say about this one. 
Um, middleweight, Dracus Duplessis defeats Brad Tavares unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Duplessis is one of the weirdest fighters. Like, it, I'd seen, I mean, he was a little bit back and forth, uh, not up and down, but back and forth in his two UFC fights before this. One of which ended in the first, the other early in the second. He goes the distance here, this is uh, for the first time in his career. And he just has the weirdest body mechanics, the weirdest... But it works. He makes it work. Uh, he drops the first round. He, they both kind of landed some decent punches. He goes, They clinch up. He goes for a lateral drop, but... Doing that against Tavares is a uh, bit of an iffy proposition anyway. And it looks like a little bit of his grip slipped as well as he was going down. He, just, he basically just winds up pulling Tavares on top of him. Winds up losing the rest of the round. And his cardio, given how he fights, like, he comes out like he's shot out of a cannon in some respect, and then he settles down. But what he settles down to, he can maintain. So while it looks like he's fatiguing, it's not so much fatigue, it's just kind of settling in. Uh, second and third rounds, he just outstruck Tavares. He landed good punches. He uh, busted up Tavares' nose with a knee. Just landed the better shots, controlled things. A solid win for Duplessis. He is... I told you guys in the preview I'm kind of I'm a pretty big believer in his abilities and this a little bit confirms it. So good on Dracus. I uh, hope to see hope to see him stay a bit more active. He's got some ability. I'm I'm very curious to see what he does next. Did he have a call out? I remember if he had a call out or not. Uh yeah. I I don't remember. Anyway. So but Good win for him. You know, Brad Tavares. Tavares is a tough, proven UFC veteran to be able to, especially rebounding after a bad first round like he did. It's a good win for Duplessis. Uh, that was our ABC prelims, which wound up having like 20 minutes of uh, dead time after the after Miller and Cerrone both ended very quick, fairly quickly. There's the early prelims. Andre Muniz defeated Uriah Hall via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Uh, Muniz and Hall did a little bit better on the feet. The first round was a little bit dicey, but once he got things down, he just kind of wore Hall out with grappling, a lot of back control. Couldn't get the finish, but uh, Muniz is legit. Muniz is very legit. Uh, Macy Barber defeated Jessica Ivey unanimous decision, 229-28-1-30-27. I don't have anything to say about this. I retired after the fight. Uh, probably overdue, to be honest. Um, yeah, so you can imagine, like, when Robbie Lawler gets stopped uh, in the second round like that, like, eh, we've had some retirements already. Are we going we gonna to break my heart and add Lawler to that, too? But, <laughs> well, break my heart's a bit of an exaggeration there. Um, look, people meme on Jessica I, and she kind of invites that on herself in some respects, but if she's ready to move on, I, I'm not going to say anything bad about her here. You know, I'm not going to, like, throw dirt on her grave or whatnot. I, I've i said what I've said about her as far as her as far as far her technical proficiency and whatnot in the past. I hope she's able to get her health issues. She's had a lot of health issues, so I hope she is in a position to move on with her life and find success in what she does next. So, uh, good luck to her with that. Macy Barber says she want, still has aspirations for the belt. Fair enough. It's good to have 
goals and aspirations. Uh, I've still never been all that, like, very impressed with Barber. She gets some wins, but she's never really kind of stood out to me. Uh, so, but, you know, keep climbing. And she's going to keep trying to climb the ladder. I Keep climbing the ladder. She's young. There's some, There are some physical gifts there. If she can kind of bring all of it to bear, who knows? Women's flyweight is a division that desperately needs help in some of those areas. And kicking everything off, Yulia Stoliarenko defeated Jessica Rose Clark via armbar, 42 seconds of the first round. She broke Clark's arm. Uh, the elbow was just popped bad. Uh, Stoliarenko needed this. She was like 0-3, I think, in the UFC coming into this. So saved her job, in all probability. All right, your post-fight bonuses. So that was the whole card. Your bonuses, I already mentioned Fight of the Night, Barbarina and Robbie Lawler. Performances of the Night, Alex Pereja, Jalen Turner, and Yulia Stoliarenko. They did Jim Miller dirty here, didn't they? Yeah. He got a real short end of that stick. Um, this was a pay-per-view, so we should have the Crypto.com Bitcoin bonuses. However, I don't believe that information has been made public yet. Now, again, in theory, those are still a thing. But with Bitcoin doing what it's doing at the moment, who knows? So hopefully those are still a thing. Hopefully the fighters still got paid. And if you got paid in Bitcoin, if you're one of the guys who won the popularity contest for that, cash immediately. Sell it. <laughs> uh, sorry. Talk to your actual financial advisor. Don't listen to an idiot on an MMA podcast about your finances. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Crypto. Hey, unrelate, unregulated securities market with no uh, safety net. Who'd have thought? Yeah, whatever. Again, if it's fighters getting more money, I, I will yell about crypto as an entity, but pay the fighters. Pay the fighters. So... Again, the last few times that information has been made public, I don't think it's been made public yet. So, I don't know. If I were to guess, because it is just a popularity contest, probably Max, Izzy, and O'Malley would be my guesses. Those would be my guesses. Would be Max, Izzy, and O'Malley in some order. If I had to guess the order, it would probably be Max, O'Malley, and Izzy. Would be my guess. Um, this particular event is tracking to do very well on pay-per-view, especially in the Oceania region, which is very good for Volkanovski. You know, uh, Australian combat sports are enjoying a bit of a resurgence. Uh, I mean, you had Cambosos losing his belts, but that event was held in Australia. Uh, you had Tim Zhu on the boxing side of things as well. If Volkanovski's out drawing up both of them on pay-per-view, and he very well could be, you know, good for him. Get paid more. Uh, uh, I think Volkanovski mentioned it after the fight, like the, his finances, that you know, his new deal, he is the highest paid featherweight since Conor, not including Conor McGregor, I think, something like that. I don't think he's making Conor McGregor's level of money. You know, McGregor's last couple of fights were like two and a half and four million, I think. Something like that. I, f I forget the exact number. I saw it, but I, I don't remember it off the top of my head. But uh, there were uh, it was around that area. You know, if 
if Volkanovski's making a million plus a fight, or he should, first of all, he should be making a lot more than that because they all should, but pay the man. He is the best in the world, I think, so pay him. Pay him, pay him, pay him. All right, that was the event. My full report is in the MMAZona411mania.com if you wish to read my round-by-round -round scoring, live coverage, and get clips of the finishes. That is all available over there. All right, I yacked for quite a while about that. But there was a lot of stuff to talk about, so let us move on. You, this is coming Saturday, UFC on ESPN 39. Main event, Rafael Dos Anjos and Rafael... Uh, Rafael. Rafael Fiziev and Rafael Dos Anjos. This is a very good fight. It's a very relevant lightweight fight. And I think Dos Anjos will provide a stern test for Fiziev. Dos Anjos is a very good fighter. He's pretty good everywhere. He's still a good pressure fighter. Still good in the clinch. Like, I've mentioned this before, man. Dos Anjos is one of those fighters that people forget about when they they just kind of forget about how good they are. Uh, he's coming off of that absolute beating of Hanato Moicano, man. <sighs> he beat the crap out of Moicano. Uh, that fight should have been stopped. It really should have been stopped. Uh, Fiziev, on the other hand, is on a really good run. His only loss ever was his UFC debut when he fought Magomed Mustafaev. Uh, he's coming off of a win over Brad Riddell where he stopped him with a wheel kick, basically. Uh, beat Bobby Green before that, stopped Hanato Moicano. Fiziev is on his way up. This is Fiziev's first five-round fight. I bel Let me double-check that. I'm 99% sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the first time you go five, that's different. So that might be an avenue. If Dos Anjos is going to have a good shot at winning this, it is by extending the fight long. I'm still going to pick Fiziev. I like RDA, but I think he's... I think he's been around for a while. I think that's starting to catch up to him a little bit. I think he's going to be a very, very stern test, and I think he can win. Especially if this goes long. That first time you go five, man, you can. Pre there is still a gap between preparation and reality as far as that goes. Now, minimizing that, you know, how do you minimize it? How do you do, can you deal with it anyway? That's all. That's all. You know, very true. Very those are very real concerns. And I do. Again, I'm going to pick Fiziev, but I think Dos Anjos gives him a pretty stern test and. I think it's a very good it's a very good fight night main event. Uh, the rest of this card a little bit, a little bit not so much. So your next fight down your co-main event, uh, Ch uh, Kyle uh, Bahalo against Armin Petrosian. They're giving Petrosian another setup here, basically. Um, Petrosian, I want to make sure I'm correct about this. I'm 90% sure, but. I believe he is one of those guys that came out of uh, the Glendale Fight Club. Uh, I just want to confirm that. He is 7-1. and one. He is Armenian. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he is. He beat Gregory Rodriguez by split decision. I kind of thought he lost that fight, actually. Oh, he's not a... No, he does not fight out of Glendale. He fights out of Academy MMA? 
am I thinking of if I'm not thinking of him? Huh. Alright, um, okay, that, that's not going to change my pick, but I'm glad I double-checked that. Uh, just because I, uh, I still think this is kind of a setup for Petrosian, let me be clear about that. He's the one that they kind of, I think they're a little bit higher on. Uh, but, now he's, he is not, because the other guy, the guy I'm thinking of, whose name I can't remember, uh, he he fights he fights out of Edmund Tarverdian's camp, and he's had I think his first two UFC fights, and that's usually about the point when the wheels fall off, <laughs> when you you can't just kind of get by on what you've got at the moment. You have to adjust, you have to advance your game, and Edmund Tarverdian can't really do that. So I'm gonna pick Petrosian here without too much difficulty. Next up, bantamweights. This is a good fight. This is probably the second best fight on the card after the main event. Uh, Saeed Nurmagomedov and Douglas Silva de Andrade. Um, Nurmagomedov only has one loss in the UFC. He dropped a decision to Hani Barcelos. He's coming off of that. He he ran over Cody Stamen and back in January. I mean, sub-one-minute fight. Uh, whereas de Andrade is just a... He's a tough roadblock, man. He's been there for a long time. Uh, he's had some ups and downs in the UFC, but... He is a stern test. Uh, I'm going to pick Nurmagomedov. I, I'm i not going to be surprised if Douglas Silva de Andrade wins because he's durable and he's a good fighter, but I, I'm a... Saeed Nurmagomedov has a lot of upside. There's a heavyweight fight between Jared Vandera and Chase Sherman. Dear God, who cares? I, If you're a family member, maybe. Jeez. I mean, Sherman is 0-4 in this, his third UFC stint? Second. Yeah, he's 0-4. Uh, he got key-locked by Alexander Romanov, the old heavyweight special. I shouldn't say that. I, I After that fight, actually, I talked a little bit about why the American or the key-lock works more on heavyweights than on, other, uh, than on differently built fighters. And Vandera is 1-4 and four in the UFC, with one win over Justin Taffa in there. They got fight of the night when it absolutely should not have. I, I again ask you, who cares? Uh, whatever you do, don't bet on this one. I'll pick Vandera, but God, that's because I feel compelled to make a pick by virtue of doing the show. I, I could not possibly care less. Uh, middleweight, Jamie Pickett and Dennis Tallulah. Pickett, two and three in the UFC. This is a middleweight debut, though, right? Yes. Uh, he fought, I think he was supposed to make his middleweight debut uh, back in February, but he wound up having a change of opponent, and so they fought at a catchweight. Before that, he was at light heavyweight. Middleweight? Light heavyweight? What the heck? He always been at middleweight? Yeah, yeah, I th sorry, I'm misreading that. I am misreading that, yeah. Um, probably go with Pickett here. He's fought in the UFC. 
fall out, did it? No, it did not fall out. Huh, it's not listed over here, so I can't look up Mr. Tallulah's record. Well, that is slightly annoying. I know he's fought in the UFC because I recognize the name. I'll pick Pickett, but I'm not sold on that. At lightweight, Michael Johnson and Jamie Malarkey. Michael Johnson. You will not find someone with more flashes of brilliance, but who is unable to sustain them. He is coming off of a win. He beat Alain Patrick to break a four-fight losing streak. Lost to Jalen Turner. Uh, I'm going to... Malarkey's too hittable. I mean, he might be durable enough to weather the storm and then beat Johnson, but I'm going to pick Johnson and just feel silly maybe for picking... I do feel silly for picking Michael Johnson, but I'm going to do it anyway. So that at the moment is the main card. I don't know that this is the official finalized bout order yet. As for the prelims, Cynthia Calvillo and Nina Nunes. Calvillo needs a win bad. A three-fight losing streak. I mean, Nina Nunes is lost her last couple of fights. I'll pick Calvillo, but if she can't get it done here, she might. We might have to officially move her into into the bust category. Uh, bantamweight: Eamon Zahabi and Ricky Tercios. Zahabi coming off of a win. Lost two in a row before that, though. I think it's probably Zahabi, but uh, that one could go either way. Uh, women's flyweight, Antonina Shevchenko and Courtney Casey. Courtney Casey's still sticking around. Good for her. Um, she's coming off of a win. Let's see. There's Antonina's coming off of a stoppage loss to Casey O'Neill. I'm probably going to go with Shevchenko, but yeah, I'm going to go with Shevchenko, but that's a slight lean. Uh, there's not a lot of not a lot of uh, faith in that particular pick. Middleweights, Trasan Gore and Cody Brundage. Um, Gore is 3-1. and one. He is coming off of a loss in his UFC debut. He was supposed to fight on the finale of The Ultimate Fighter, season whatever, who cares. Um, got injured, they brought him back to fight the guy who did win that season, and then he lost. I think they're trying to give him a softer touch here. Brundage is 7-2, and two. he is 1-1 one and one in the UFC. Actually, I'm still going to pick Brundage, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm picking Brundage. Uh, let's see. Carl Robertson and Kennedy and Zechiku. Zechiku is on a two-fight losing streak. Uh, whereas Robertson on a three-fight losing streak. 
Um, this feels like it's designed to get Inzechiku back on the horse. That's what it feels like. Uh, sure, I'll pick that way as well. Um, I won't be surprised if Robertson does this, because the UFC is a lot higher on Inzechiku than I am. Then a bantamweight fight between Ronnie Lawrence and Saeed Yakub Kakramanov. Uh, I was relatively impressed with Saeed Yakub Kakramanov. He is 9-2 and two overall. Uh, one is UFC debut. Um, Ronnie Lawrence is a tough guy, man. Um, got two wins in the UFC. He's a tough wrestler. Like this is a good, this is a surprisingly good fight here. I think I'm gonna lean towards Kakramanov, but that's a lean and not much more than that. That's a that's a surprisingly good fight. And theoretically, somewhere on this card, Austin Lingo will fight David Onama. I don't mind picking Lingo there in the dark. Not in the dark, but assuming that fight is still happening here, I don't mind picking Lingo. And that is the card. I will be covering it July 9th on so Saturday. You have over in the four over in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Please do stop by and say hello if you are so inclined. I always appreciate it. All right. Uh, gonna be short on news here, but we're gonna talk. So, first up, at UFC 276, there was a confrontation, not a physical altercation, but a verbal confrontation between Michael Chandler and Dustin Poirier. Uh, this was recorded by a bunch of people around them. It's been released. It's on the internet. You can hear them arguing and kind of getting after it. That seems to be the fight to make next. So, be on the lookout for that fight to become official in the near future, and it will be a glorious fight when it does. Uh, let's see. Uh, Kamaru Usman, the UFC welterweight champion, has been making noise about potentially going after bigger game. He's now saying he wishes to bypass middleweight and fight at light heavyweight, and I laugh. The size disparity at light heavyweight would be comical. Uh, but if he wants to try, hey, you know what? Get paid, man. If you think you could, if that's something you want to try. Knock yourself out, but I, as good as a fighter as Kamaru Usman is, and he's a very, very good fighter, probably, he's one of the best fighters in the world. He's straight up one of the very best. I do not think he would have tremendous success fighting at light heavyweight. Just gonna phrase it like that. Alright, that is the news that I had written down. Let us check Twitter, and if nothing is broken, we will get end of plugs and get out of here. Alright, nope, nothing new, so what do we got for plugs? Last week, there were some movie reviews. Uh, myself, Mark Radulich, and Alexis Haina reviewed uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which is streaming on Disney+, and Lightyear, which... Well, that kind... Sorry, I believe I'm a week off on that. That's That was two weeks ago. Lightyear still bombed. Last week, Mark Radlich and I over on Damn You Hollywood did a uh, double review with Jason Teasley talking Elvis, the Baz Luhrmann biopic on Elvis Presley, and The Black Phone, the supernatural hor thriller horror movie starring Ethan Hawke and some child actors, some of them were pretty darn good. 
So if you're interested in our thoughts on that, uh, go over to Damn You Hollywood. That's where I do all my movie podcasting, and we talk about those. Uh, we talk those movies this week. There was only one movie to discuss this week, but you know it, you love it. <laughs> it's a joke between myself and Mark. It we will be discussing this Tuesday on Damn You Hollywood Minions: The Rise of Gru. So that will be on the uh, that will be again Tuesday evening. But if you're curious about any of that, my other podcasts are over at the W2M Network. So give that a listen, or you can just type Damn You Hollywood into whatever your podcast platform of choice happens to be, and I'm sure you can find it. Now, that is my only other podcasting thing this coming week. As for other stuff I will be doing, I cover professional wrestling a few nights a week over in the wrestling zone of 411mania.com. AW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday. Last week I covered Monday Night Raw. Which was a thing, I suppose, technically. I don't remember any of it. Well, I just realized that. I literally remember nothing from that show. <laughs> State of Raw, ladies and gentlemen. And UFC on ESPN 39, of course, on Saturday. We will be back here next week to review UFC on ESPN 39 and... To preview, UFC on ABC 3, uh, headlined by Brian Ortega and Yair Rodriguez. That's actually a very good fight. Also on that card, what's it on that card? Uh, yeah, they're in uh, they're in New York for that one. Yeah, that's on that card. That's not a bad card, actually. So, Ortega and Rodriguez, good main event. I don't care about Watterson and Lemos. Lijing Leong and Muslim Salikov's pretty good. Shane Burgos and Charles Jordan, that's, uh, that'll be good. I don't care about Murphy and Tate. I didn't care about it when it was booked for the card that just happened. Uh, Ricky Simone and Jack Shore has some potential. Bill Algio and Billy Quarantillo could be fun. Yeah, there's some stuff there. We'll have a full preview next week, but there's actually some stuff there. So, yay. Full preview next week. See you then. Until next time, as always, I thank you for listening. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.